You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I have to apologize to all of you. At one point I thought Colossians was the best book in the Bible. Then I discovered actually that it was Galatians that was the very best book in the Bible. Well, I was wrong twice. You'll find that I'm wrong often. It's 1 Corinthians that's the best book in the Bible. I've been reading through it and uh, I was telling Jim this morning, I was trying to come up, what's the most important verse in the book? Okay, there's 37 verses. No, we're not going to do that. What's the most exciting chapter? Oh, there's at least... No, we're not going to do that. So I just... I, I didn't pick the verse at random that we're going to use for our opening scene every morning, but it seems to me, at least from my life story, such was I. Such was I. But I was washed. I was sanctified. Do you, don't you just love that those verbs are past tense with ongoing consequences? I was one of those. But now... I'm washed, I'm sanctified, I'm justified by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to find as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> that, that is a theme, that's a major theme, that uh, the church would in any age do well to remember. Such were we. If we were like the people that were in Corinthians, and we were, oh, but I didn't do, I didn't do chapter 5. When we get to chapter 5, we'll see that. But I, I didn't mess up in chapter 12 like that. Never compare yourself to one another. Always we'll compare ourselves to the Word of God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, uh, we're going to open in prayer. We're going to learn some things about Corinth. Uh, we may get into the book proper today in chapter 1. We may, we may not. But I just thought that uh, that verse struck me as I've been reading through it. Um, such was I. So let's open in prayer. Father, in every age, it's incumbent upon the church to remember that those who have been washed, sanctified, and justified by the Lord Jesus Christ were of the world, all of us. By your sovereign grace, you chose us, you made us one of your elect, and you gave us every gift that could ever need to be given. And so this morning, as we begin looking at another book, one of the epistles that your apostle wrote, uh, let us remember that every word, every word of it is for us. You have ordained it so. And so let us pay attention. Let us be grateful. Let us be excited. Let us be encouraged. But also let us be sobered by the realities of those things that you have saved us from. And we'll thank you for what we're going to learn in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> Corinth had, the, the, the book of 1 Corinthians is, it's just chock full of everyday information about how to live, how to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ by His grace. But it's also got some unusual 
occurrences and happenings that in one place Paul says weren't, weren't even something that the Gentiles would do in one place. They wouldn't even do this. It was not, not known among them, about the pagans. And uh, the city of Corinth had all kinds of reputations and, uh, it, in the day, back in the day, in the, in the first century A.D. And uh, we're going to learn just what all that means. It's changed much over the centuries. Uh, so it's over here in this Peloponnesus, uh, Achaia, which is Achaia which is a province of Rome. Corinth was the capital of the province of Rome. It's that little red city just above Centre, uh, on the Isthmus, Isthmus. I hate it when they put 17 consonants together and you've got to try and pronounce them without spitting on people, but there it is. The Isthmus of Corinth. Uh, it's on the left. It's about 45 miles from Athens. A um, lot of interesting history, which we will, we will probably delve into as we go. Uh, this is Apostle, the, the book of 1 Corinthians was written during Paul's, or, I mean, excuse me, a Corinth was established by Paul, I'm getting ahead of myself, was established by Paul during his second missionary journey between 49 and 52 AD. Uh, and those arrows kind of give you an idea of how he traveled and where he went. Um, Corinth has changed much over the centuries from a thriving, thriving, geographically important town to a small town with very little significance other than historical um, here's our timeline. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But it, it, there's a gulf on each side. Let me back up. Let me go back. I guess I better not aim at the. There's, so the, on the on the left is the Gulf. I remember what that Gulf was, the Saronic Gulf. On the east, that little Gulf on the east is the Saronic Gulf. On the west, on the left side, is the uh, um, Gulf of Corinth. <laughs> that makes sense. And to go from the Saronic Gulf all the way around the bottom of the Peloponnesus and up into the western Gulf, the Gulf of Corinth, to get to the other side was a, da- a dangerous journey. There was two sayings at the time that would give you an idea of just how dangerous it was. One of them was, a sailor never takes a journey around Malia. And Malia is, you see where the, word, where the hundred mile thing is? Malia is down on the bottom down there. Maybe I have a map that shows that. Let me see if I do. Nope, we don't have a map. I thought I had one that showed Malia. At any rate, back up, back up. So Malia is down there in the bottom. It's the, the saying was, a sailor never takes a journey around Malia until he first writes his will. Dangerous journey. Another saying was, um, let him who sails round Malia forget his home. Because that's the saying. The idea being he may not make it back home. Most captains, instead of journeying around the bottom and up into the Gulf of Corinth, would, uh, would take their goods overland across the isthmus to the other gulf. It was quicker, it cost less, and was much safer than sailing the 250 miles around the peninsula. The isthmus between the two gulfs actually um, came to be called at some time in the past the Diakos, Diakos, Dialcos, excuse me, Dialcos, uh, which means the place of dragging across, because they would drag their goods across there. I believe it was four miles. I forgot to write that in, but it's not very far. Um, this made Corinth a major trade center. There's a canal across the Dismuths today. There's actually a canal between the two, the two gulfs that ships can cross. Uh, now get this, this was a government project. It was started in, uh, it was envisioned 600 AD. Uh, and it was started in uh, AD 
the first century A.D. by the Roman Emperor Nero. Started in vision 600 A.D. Somebody had an idea of a canal across there, some government functionary. And then in the first century A.D., the Emperor Nero started that canal. It was finished in 1893. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was actually a little faster than the bypass. Uh, a little faster. That was a government project. So uh, the, the Super Bowl of the day and the uh, Olympic Games of the day, the Super Bowl and the World Series would have been the Olympic Games and the Isthmian Games. The, uh, the, the Olympics, of course, were held in Rome, and Corinth was the host of the Isthmian Games. The games were named after and played on that isthmus, and they were actually called the Isthmian. Isthmian. I'm going to have trouble with that word. Be glad you're more than six feet away from me. Isthmian Games. They were named after, after and played on that isthmus. In 146 B.C., the Romans destroyed Corinth. A hundred years later, Julius Caesar rebuilt it, and eventually it became the capital of the Roman province of Achaia, that whole province area there. Uh, it had a cosmopolitan population made up of people from all over the known world. Um, it would have been much like Las Vegas. or uh, How many of you have been to Las Vegas? And you ride a cab. If you ride six cabs, you will talk to six continents. It's amazing. You will talk to people from sometimes from six different continents down there. Um, Acro Corinth was a high place in the city, and it was a place of defense and of pagan uh, worship. This, from the summit of the Acro Corinth, where the temple was, and we'll get to the temple here in a minute, you could see Athens, which was 45 miles away. That place, the Acro Corinth, could house could hold the entire population of the city of Corinth, which was, I think, somewhere near a half million, and uh, it could also it could also contain the population of the surrounding farmlands in the case in the event that the city was besieged. So it was kind of a uh, if you if you had your bug out bag made up in Corinth in one A.D. one in the first century A.D. That's where you would go in the event of a, of a city, uh, an army besieging the city. On top of this high, high place was the famous temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Uh, the temple was attended by a thousand priestesses, which were ritual prostitutes, and they would come down into the city at night and ply their trade. Uh, that's part of what gave the city its, its debauched temp, temper and nature and uh, uh, its... Um, that's what made it famous, if you will. Even the pagan world acknowledged the corruption of the city. In classical Greek, there was a, a saying, uh, that, a saying that captured the idea of just how bad Corinth was, how much debauchery, how much drunkenness, and how much general gross immorality there was in the city. If you wanted to call somebody a bad name, if you wanted to cast an aspersion on them, you would say that he behaved like a Corinthian. The word was Corinthias, Corinthias the Stein. <laughs> That's another Why do Greeks have 47 consonants? Corinthias the Stein. He was a Corinthian. He behaved like a Corinthian. Old Corinth had gained such a reputation for sec sexual vice that Aristophanes, from about 450 AD, BC, coined that verb. It meant to act like a Corinthian, to commit fornication. If you were associated with this city, people would automatically think things about you. You talk about profiling, stereotyping. Uh, when you hear, when you heard someone was from Corinth, you'd go, I don't know if I want to ride in the same cab with them. 
the Greek writer Alien tells us that if ever a Corinthian was shown on a stage in a Greek play, he was shown drunk. That was their part. Oh yeah, that must be the Corinthian. Look at him stumble around. One of the commentators described Corinth as intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. Sound like any place today? The, uh, the Corinthians prided themselves on their intellect, their ability to understand geopolitical situations and to relate to the world, to, they, to relate globally, if you will. They, they acted locally, terribly, but they thought globally. It's nothing, there's nothing new under the sun, folks. Nothing new under the sun. Nothing. In chapter 6 of this epistle, Paul details some of the sins that beset the city, including idolatry, adultery, effeminacy, homosexuality, stealing, covetousness, drunkenness, abusive speech, and swindling. <laughs> and it's amazing how those, to, in great degree, go together. This would have been the setting for Paul's entrance into the city when he founded the church on his second missionary journey. The city was a sinkhole of depravity and debauchery, and Paul <coughs> even had to deal with a horrible sin that even pagan Gentiles did not have to do, deal with, uh, incest in chapter 5. So we're going to read, before we open in Corinthians, we're going to read Acts chapter 18, uh, from 1 through 18. So if you want to turn there, that is the story of the founding of Corinth, or the founding of the church at Corinth. Acts chapter 18. After these things, he left Athens, 45 miles to the east. He left Athens, and he traveled uh, to Corinth. He went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. That was an interesting situation. He was anti-Semitic. Uh, he came to them. And because he was of the same trade... Because Paul was of the same trade as Aquilus, uh, Priscilla and Aquilus, Aquila. He stayed with them, and they, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. So once Silas and Timothy came down, he, he was freed up to spend all of his time dealing with the word of God and writing and, and preaching in the synagogues, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul on the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months. So he was there 18 months, year and a half, teaching them, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was the proconsul of Asia, Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or of a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for, for me to put up with you, to deal with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, 
Look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes. So they took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, took over from Crispus, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Centraea, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. So that's the, that's the abbreviated, if you will, founding of the church at Corinth. Paul tried to deal with the Jews. They booted him, so he went to the Gentiles. So on the second missionary journey, Paul began working in Macedonian Greek cities for some time. He had been in Philippi. He had been in Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and finally Corinth in Acts chapter 16 through 18. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla met him on his arrival in the city, which would have been about 51 A.D., They were tent makers just like he was, and so he stayed with them. Thus he ministered as he worked so that he would not be a burden to the churches. Every Sabbath he would preach in the synagogue. Later, Silas and Timothy joined him, having come in from Macedonia, and Paul intensified his messages. Resistance sprang up, of course, but soon many from uh, the city began to believe in Christ. Crispus, who was the chief ruler of the synagogue, then, then believed, and so once a leader broke the ice... And it's unfortunate that it is so. But once a leader broke the ice or broke the barrier, many followed. It just, that's what it says in Acts. At that point, Paul was encouraged by the Lord not to be afraid, but to speak and not hold his peace because the Lord told him, I am with you. Uh, So God comforted Paul that he would not be harmed, even though the resistance was great. Paul stayed there another year and a half, as Acts mentioned, and uh, preaching and ministering throughout the city. Then the Jews began to resist him so strenuously that he was brought before the proconsul Gallio, but Gallio would not hear the case. Uh, he told them to handle it themselves, told the Jews to handle it themselves. He then left Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila and went to Ephesus, and then he returned to Palestine. And so that's Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 22. One of the leaders that we'll see in the Corinthian church was Apollos. And it's funny, because I've heard of Apollos all my Christian life, long, long time, decades, and I never really dug into him. So I'm going to dig into him a little bit, but he... There's more than I thought available to read about Apollos, extra scriptural as well as scriptural. So um, after his conversion, Apollos, he also went to Ephesus and began preaching while Aquila and Priscilla were there. And apparently he had a few doctrinal deficiencies and they were able to correct them. Aquila and Priscilla were able to correct them. Apollos wanted to go into Achaia, but he was exhorted to, to come back to Corinth. And some believe he was actually, he began ministering as their next pastor in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through chapter 19, verse 1. So we'll get a timeline here. As we, So in A.D. 50 to 52 is Paul's first visit to Corinth, and there are the chapters. Then in the spring of 55, he's in Ephesus, and he writes 1 Corinthians. Then in uh, the summer-fall of 55, he has a painful visit, a painful visit to, 1 to Corinth, that's 2 Corinthians, then in the spring of 56, he writes a severe letter. <laughs> I read 1 Corinthians and I thought, this is pretty severe. But apparently he wrote a severe letter uh, fall, from Paul, taken by Titus to Corinth from, from Ephesus. Then in the sp- spring, and, and these are not set in concrete dates. I mean, I, I looked through the timelines of different commentators, and they're all, they all hover around those dates, but some of them have different opinions as to the timing and stuff, but... That's really not important. Paul, in AD spring of 56, he leaves Ephesus with the Demetrius riot, 
Then in 56, between spring and summer, he stops in Troas, hoping to meet Titus, returning from Corinth. Then in the summer of 56, he's in Macedonia. And then in the late summer of 56, Titus arrives in Macedonia. So, and I just threw this, there's, Jim and I were talking this morning about how the book of Acts is such a delightful book, because you can hang all the epistles on pegs in in the timeline in the book of Acts. And I'm not going to leave this up very long if you want it. I can email it to you. But this is the timeline of the books of the New Testament. And I just found it interesting. So 1 Corinthians is right up there. You see it. 1st, 2nd Corinthians and Roman, right in that section in late 50s, late 50s, just before 60 AD. So here's ancient Corinth. And there's a lot of history there, a lot of buildings, a lot of ancient temples that are still available uh, to look at. That's what it looked like. You know, well, that's not what it looked like. Imagine those new and, and full of life, people around them, prostitutes in this temple. You know, there's a city section down there. That would have been, is it showing up very good? Not as well as it did in my computer. But at any rate, so then this is modern Corinth. Uh, and it looks, I mean, look down there in the lower left. I've seen sections of Spokane that look like that. So it's, you know... <laughs> So there's a, a, a geographic arrangement of ancient Corinth, Corinthian Canal, Saronic Gulf, Gulf of Corinth, and that's the great dragging across there, Salamis, Athens. So you could see Athens from the heights of Corinth. You could see the, the city of Athens. Um, here's a general outline, and we'll, 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 um, I won't be necessarily, it would seem to be a really good outline. If you want it, I can send it to you. But we're going to talk about divisions in the church. We're going to talk about the causes, and note that one, it says a wrong conception of the Christian marriage. I see that message, excuse me, I see that so often today. I, I'll see postings online where people say, well, the fundamentalist Christians believe this and this, and I read what they say, and they go, I, no, they don't. Who wrote this? I'm going to shoot back a, no, I'm not, I haven't got time. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how often the Christian message, message has gotten wrong in the church, we shouldn't be amazed when it happens outside the church, but it does greatly, often. Wrong conception of Christian ministers. Wrong conception of the Christian. Uh, okay, I don't know what that meant this time, but you know. Uh, moral and ethical disorders in the life. Laxity in church discipline. Lawsuits. They were bringing each other before the law. That's a no-no. That's a biblical no-no. Sexual immorality. Uh, then there's general instruction on marriage. Problems of the married, <laughs> problems of the unmarried, uh, uh, questionable practices, the principles involved, the principles illustrated, a warning from the history of Israel, and the principles applied, instruction on public worship. The book of 1 Corinthians covers so many areas. It's going to be like a, a primer on the Christian life, on, on how to get along. Instruction on public worship, the Lord's Supper, the gifts, testing the gifts, the diversity of the gifts. Uh, superior prophecy over tongues. We'll talk about, about the sign gifts and, and their disposition, whether they exist today or not. Uh, we'll get to that. That's going to be probably, I don't know, this is a long book. It's going to be a while. The resurrection, one of the finest verses in the Bible that has the, the, the gospel in a nutshell in chapter 15. Um, the certainty of the resurrection, consideration of certain objections, concluding appeal and practical and personal matters. Um, Oh, there's Malia. There's my map of Malia. Who put it in the wrong place? 
So the communication timeline. Next would be the communication timeline. So Corinthian communications. This is how it went. There was Paul's founding visit when he founded the church, A.D. 51-52. His former letter, then in chapter 7, we're going to see that the Corinthians had some questions about marriage and other things, so they wrote him a letter and asked him some questions. That's the Corinthian letter. Based on reports from Chloe's household, not gossip, but things that were going on in the church that were, that were unsettling to, to Bible-believing uh, believers in the church, Bible-believing believers, to Bible believers in the church. They wrote a letter to Paul. Their people told him, These, this, there's some bad things going on in Corinth. And then there was a letter written to him in, uh, that he refers to in chapter 7, asking questions. Based on that, he writes 1 Corinthians. That's what we have here. Then there's, after that, there's Paul's painful visit, which is detailed. Then his severe letter. Then 2 Corinthians. And then Paul's anticipated visit. So that's the, if you were looking at a communication timeline for the book of 1 Corinthians, or for Corinthians, that's what it would look like. Okay, we're going to go ahead and read the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. We're going to get into that. So page 1472, for those of you with this Bible. 1 Corinthians. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Sosthenes, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge. And, and the Corinthians placed a premium on speech and knowledge. In all speech and knowledge even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called unto fellowship, into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I exhort you, brethren, verse 10, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you, but you be made complete, in the same mind and in the same judgment. <clears throat> For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, and I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you. Was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Remember, Crispus was the the leader of the synagogue that believed. That no man should say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. 
For indeed, Jews ask for a sign, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. And that no man should boast before God, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that just as it is written, as it is written let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You could almost stop there. First Corinthians, one chapter, covers everything, everything you need to know. But the Holy Spirit in His wisdom, good thing I wasn't writing the Bible, you guys would really be lost. The Holy Spirit in His wisdom covers everything that is necessary for this specific church and their difficulties and for churches throughout the ages because there's nothing new under the sun. So starting uh, with the very first verse, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Today, Jenny, the ruler when Paul got there, he became a Christian. We're going to find out. It may be that there were two people in Corinth named Sosthenes, or maybe even three, or it could be the same. I, 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 I went through that, and I, there's differing opinions as to whether or not this Sosthenes is the one that gets beaten in Acts chapter 18. It could be, and it may very well likely be, but I couldn't, uh, there's no definitive historical record of that. So uh, maybe Jim probably has studied this section. Maybe when we get to that, he can speak up, or Justin, or anybody else in here that knows who thought Sosthenes was. <clears throat> Today when we write a letter, we generally start it out with the name of the person to whom we are writing. Dear John. Isn't it interesting how we have what I would call literary memes in our society? What was the first thing you thought of when I said, Dear John? It could have just been a letter written to John. However, anyway, okay. We usually start out with that. We start out with a name. In ancient times, letters were started with the name of the person writing. And so here, the very first word, actually, in the Greek text is Paul's name. <clears throat> he also refers to Sosthenes, who ministered with him. Some believe Sosthenes was one of the 70 disciples the Lord appointed in Luke chapter 10 although there's no biblical reference to this. There is a Sosthenes, a ruler of the synagogue, who was beaten in Acts chapter 18, uh, verse 17, and he may have been the same one, but we do not know for sure. We also, there's a, there's a, a suspicion or a, uh, an idea that this Sosthenes may have been Paul's amanuens, amanuensis for this letter, his secretary, the fellow who wrote this letter at Paul's dictation. <clears throat> so, again, any other comments about Sosthenes? There's no clear... There's extra biblical suggestions, but in the scripture, we, we know there's one talking about in Acts 18, and this is a Sosthenes. It's possible they're the same person. That would imply that the Sosthenes got beaten, and at some point he became a Christian too. There's, there's all kinds of uh, suggestions about he's the guy that took Paul to Gallio, and the beating was because Gallio was mad at him for bringing him to bring him to me. Why did you bring this guy to me? I don't want to mess with this. 
all different, you know, it's just lots of, you wonder how stories and books and novels get written? That's how, by, by imagining all kinds of things about four words. So, Sosthenes may have been Paul's amanuensis. Then, as always, as near as I can tell, as near as I can remember, Paul makes reference to his apostleship, making sure the Corinthians knew that he, the Corinthians knew that he was writing as an ambassador of the Lord. This was not Paul just writing you a letter for the writing of a letter. His apostleship, he says, was not a popularly elected position, but rather an assignment from God himself and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why he said, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Called as an apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who redeemed you. And I'm doing this, he says, by the will of God. This letter is coming to you, not just because Chloe's people reported some things, not because of the letter you wrote to me asking about how to deal with marriage and other things, but because I am an ambassador of God. And it's, this letter is, by the, is, is of the will of God. And so that's, a, that's for us, that's an imprimatur on the scripturality, scripturality, scripturalness of this letter. Any questions, comments about verse 1? Verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. There's a lot here. The church is not the church of men, or the church at Kootenai, or the church at Corinth, or the residence of any given town or city or church itself, but rather it is the church of God, bought by His blood, sanctified by Him, and kept by Him. Bought, sanctified, and kept. And it's all over the world, Paul is saying here. Um, The Greek word, ekklesia, has both a Gentile and a Jewish background. In its Gentile sense, it, it denotes chiefly the citizen assembly of a Greek city. They had at that time, we won't get into the politics of it, but they had that at earlier, 2,500 years earlier, and, at, and even at that time, they had essentially very pure democracies, which are just this side of mob rule. They're, just, they're terrible governments, terrible kind of government. But it's the called out ones, the citizens of a city. So that's the Gentile aspect. But in its Jew, it is its Jewish usage that underlies its use to denote... Okay, so that's, that's, that's this church or the called out ones. Which is the church? It is its Jewish usage that underlies its use to denote the community of believers in Jesus. In the Septuagint, in the Septuagint it is one of the words used to denote the people of Israel and their religious character as Yahweh's assembly. So in the Septuagint, this very word was used to talk of the called out ones of Yahweh's assembly, the Jewish folks, folk. That was F.F. F. Bruce in his Acts uh, commentary. The verb that has been translated, <coughs> who have been sanctified, is in the perfect tense in indicating completion. That church has been sanctified. Now, who is the church? Is it that building up there? Or is it these people, the called out ones? And that's what, pardon me? It's the called out ones. It's you. We're not, this isn't a church, is it? I mean, if we actually, it's a school. Uh, and it wouldn't matter where we met. If we were meeting and, and breaking bread and teaching and hearing the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God, that's a church. It's a place of meeting of the called out ones. Now, Paul had just gotten word from Chloe's people that there's bad things going on in the church at, at to Corinth. 
Obviously, they reported enough to him that he was able to write about the incest, the marriage problems, the spiritual gift silliness, the, 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 the debauchery, the drunkenness, all the things that were going on in Corinth. Is it coming through the speakers? Okay, sorry, Jim. Um, so he is calling this group of people who have all of these problems strewn throughout this church, those who have been sanctified, those who have been saved, those who have been set apart, holy ones, hagias. The church has been sanctified, that is, those who have truly trusted Christ are sealed and are in the process of day-by-day sanctification, practically. But positionally, they are sanctified. When God, it's the old, when God looks at us, He sees the sacrifice of His Son paying for everything. He saw that in the Corinthian church. Secondarily, but in close association with their sanctification, the believers at Corinth are saints. Now, there's so many <coughs> misapplications of that word. I mean, I won't get into all of it. The Greek word translated saint means one set apart, a set apart one. This is someone whom God has sovereignly saved and set apart from the world for his purposes and his enjoyment. As we will see progressing through this epistle, the saints at Corinth were anything but saintly. Most of them, many of them. They were saints because God made them so and set them apart. Paul is identifying with them in the early stages of this epistle, letting them know of his care and concern for them before he begins to take them to task, which starts in verse 10. <laughs> but early on, right here in the opening verses, he's, he's identifying with them, he's comforting them, he's encouraging them. Yes, you are saints, you are set-apart ones. And, and to those who were believers and who had been participating in some of the wickedness, they had to just hang, just hang their heads. That's what happens to me when I listen, I'm listening to a message and somehow the preacher has been eavesdropping on my world and the message is pointing right at me. And, you know, you don't, you don't bow your head in service because everybody will see you do that and they'll go, oh, he's a sinner. I'm joking, of course, because you all know I am. But God deals directly with individuals. He doesn't deal with groups. He deals with individuals. And so Paul, and, and we're, we're going to see that Though they had their problems, they were set apart. They were saints of God. He's also letting them know, uh, he connects them to believers everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he says is their Lord and ours. Their Lord and ours. Not just you Corinthians. Uh, There's an exclusivity that sometimes happens to us. Uh, We're the remnant. We're the only ones left. And there's, there's believers, there's sanctified ones all over the world. Um, there's possibly something of a conscience prodding here as well. Uh, right at the beginning of the letter, using the word saint, Paul would effectively be communicating to the Corinthians that they needed to act that way. You're saints. You need to act that way. More instruction coming uh, is, seemingly commu- is seemingly one of the connections here. Later on, he's going to talk about this stuff. Eight, indeed, eight verses later, he begins to detail their problems. And great those problems were, but they are nothing new, and they are not problems that are stuck in that time zone only, that time in history only. The church today in many ways is becoming like the church at Corinth. One commentator in his introduction detailed it thus. Uh, He said this, The measure of failure on the part of the church is the measure in which she has allowed herself to be influenced by the spirit of the age. We are sometimes told today, this was about 100 years ago, 150 years ago, that what the church supremely needs is that she should catch the spirit of the age. 
she should connect with what's going on in the world today. Connect with the, the young po- folks. Connect with what's going on in the world today. So what the su- church supremely needs is that she should catch the spirit of the age. A thousand times no. What the church supremely needs is to correct the spirit of the age. Is what this commentator said. And so Paul lovingly begins reminding and prodding the Corinthians, regardless of their behavior, which should be appropriate for a Christian representing the God of the universe, they are still the children of God. Note in this correct translation that the Corinthians are called saints, not called to be saints, as in other translations, which is okay, but they're called saints. Not called to be, they're named saints. They are brethren, and, and they are brethren of believers everywhere, and they are loved. We would do well to remember this when we ourselves are caught in a sin or when we catch someone else in a sin. Finally, in this verse, we see Paul already calling to unity, already calling to unity, reminding the Corinthians that there are saints all over the world and that the Lord Jesus Christ is their Lord as well. There is no Paul, no Apollos, no Cephas, only the Lord who is the head of the church. And so we'll end on that today. We made it all the way to verse 2. So, Paul is an apostle. Paul is bringing this letter by the will of God. He's bringing it to saints, saints who have problems. Are we grateful that we have this letter today? If we ever develop into saints who actually have problems, we can use this. Let's pray. Father, again, we are grateful for every book that you have put in this amazing book. Every chapter, every word, every epistle. You speak to us, you speak to us, you remind us that there are believers all over the world. You remind us that we are loved, you remind us that we are saints. You remind us that we are called to unity. You remind us that you love us and that you have done everything necessary so that we might have life and that we might have it in fullness, living it out to your glory. And so send us into the world this morning and in the week to come doing just that very thing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.